Hello, everyone. This is Monica Reinagel, and you're listening to the Nutrition Diva podcast. And my guest this week is Dr. Jade Wu. In addition to being the host of the Savvy Psychologist podcast, Jade is also a behavioral sleep medicine specialist, and I've invited her to talk with us today about sleep, hunger, appetite, midlight, weight gain, how all of those things fit together. Thanks so much for joining us, Jade. Thanks so much for having me. So I've talked a lot in previous episodes of this podcast about these connections between sleep and hunger, appetite, weight management. There are a lot of connections there, but I'm obviously always approaching this from the food and nutrition side of things. And I'd love to get your perspective on this as a sleep expert. So how do you see or approach this relationship between sleep, appetite, and weight management? Sure. Yeah. Just as a refresher for your audience, you've probably covered how when we are sleep deprived, the body compensates for the lack of energy by craving more calories and it tends to reach out for more saturated fats, carbs, and sweets to sort of make up for that lost energy. Not helpful. (laughs) Pardon me? Not helpful. That's exactly right. Because one type of energy doesn't actually substitute for the other. We don't get the type of energy and replenishment and refreshment that we get from sleep by eating potato chips, for example. But that's what Mm -hmm. our body needs to sort of make up for if we don't get enough sleep. And also when we don't sleep enough, we have less leptin and more ghrelin levels in our blood after that night of not enough sleep, which is how these hormones behave when we're very hungry and when our appetite is not suppressed. So then we end up getting more hungry and artificially sort of reaching for more food. And so you've already probably covered some of these topics, but I think what's less talked about in terms of how sleep is related to appetite and hunger is the role that our circadian clocks play in all of this. So Hmm. just to give a really brief primer on circadian clocks, we all have these biological rhythms in us and they usually run about 24.1-ish hours. And these are really inbuilt to our biology. All of our systems run on this sort of rhythm. And ideally, everything runs kind of in sync with each other. You can kind of think of your body as a busy train station. You know, each train has to be on schedule to not run into other trains and not delay passengers. And so you can imagine how much of a hot mess it would be if every train conductor was looking at a different clock, right? So for everything Mm -hmm. to run together, all of the trains need to be on time and have this rhythm. And the best way to have that rhythm is to keep a consistent sleep-wake schedule. And when you do have this consistent sleep-wake schedule and circadian rhythm, then your metabolism runs efficiently, your mood is good, your hormones are in sync, and your sleep is good, and your energy levels are good. But And maybe your appetite isn't as out of control. Exactly. Your appetite is more in tune with what your body actually needs rather than artificially inflated, if that makes sense. Well, let me just make sure I understand what you just said. It's that it's not even so much about a lack of sleep or sleep deprivation, getting six hours of sleep instead of eight hours of sleep, but it's more about the consistency of this sleep rhythm that affects our appetite. That's right. And actually both of the things you named are both really important. I think we just 
maybe have heard a little bit more about the sleep deprivation piece and not as much about the circadian rhythms. I really I like to emphasize to people that sleep is not just about the amount and it's not even just about the quality or the depth of sleep. It really is also about the timing. We can be kind of wishy-washy with our sleep rhythms, right? Either mm-hmm. we uh, maybe we can't control it because we do rotating shift work and that really can put a wrench in your circadian rhythms or we travel a lot and we have jet lag or we mm-hmm. don't travel for work, but we jet lag ourselves by getting up at very different times on weekdays versus weekends. So for example, if you usually get up at 7 a.m. on weekdays, but you sleep in until 10 on weekends, that's like jet lagging yourself by flying to California and back every weekend, but you didn't even get to have the fun of travel. You've just screwed <laughs> up your circadian rhythm doing it. I think any of us who have ever struggled with this, and most of my listeners know the basics of good sleep hygiene, you know, staying off our screens, avoiding caffeine and alcohol too close to bedtime, that consistent schedule that you mentioned, even things like keeping the room cool and dark and quiet. But a lot of people still really struggle to sleep through the night, despite taking all of those steps. And in a recent episode of your podcast, The Savvy Psychologist, you actually suggested that, yeah, sleep hygiene may not be all that. <laughs> that it's <laughs> sometimes actually used as the placebo for another sleep intervention. Um, so, And the placebo is supposed to be the thing that's not doing anything, right? So right. if sleep hygiene is not the answer for us, what is? Yes, sleep hygiene is such a tricky thing because often it's touted as the go-to cure for insomnia. But like you said, it's the thing that we use as the placebo condition in our clinical trials because it's kind of, it's, you can think of it like dental hygiene. It's a good place to start just Mm -hmm. like flossing and brushing regularly. That's really good. But once you already have a cavity, flossing is not going to cure that cavity. And Mm. just like that, Once you have insomnia disorder already, sleep hygiene is not enough to cure your insomnia. And so if you actually have a sleep disorder like insomnia or something else like sleep apnea, it's actually really important to get those addressed using evidence-based treatments. And the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the American College of Physicians both recommend cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI for short, as Mm -hmm. the first-line treatment for insomnia disorder. So what does that look like? What is cognitive behavioral therapy as applies to insomnia? Yeah, so this is a short-term psychotherapy, but it's not really like the type of psychotherapy you see in movies where you maybe lie on a couch or sit down and sort of talk free form with your therapist. Instead, it's more like taking a class or kind of like going to PT where you meet with your sleep specialist, you assess or they help you assess what your sleep problems are and how exactly your insomnia works. And they identify the things that are keeping your insomnia going. And together, you work on some behavioral experiments to try some different ways of when to go to bed or when to get up or how to think about sleep, how to approach the way that you relate to sleep, what you do in the moment when your sleep is not good, how you schedule or structure the rest of your life. All of these things can contribute to insomnia. And if we can identify them and figure out ways to address them, then it's kind of like taking logs out of the fire. Eventually the fire will burn down and you'll Mm. get back to normal healthy sleep as long as those 
barriers are no longer in the way. So CBTI is all about identifying those barriers and taking them out of your insomnia fire. And this has now become the gold standard for treating this type of disorder, correct? That's right. Yep. You know, you mentioned um, people entering midlife. And another thing that I hear a lot of my listeners say is that they start to develop difficulty sleeping for the first time when they get into their 40s and 50s. And that, of course, is also when many of them start to see their weight creeping up. So first, I just have to ask you, is there something physiological that occurs in midlife that affects our sleep rhythms? Or have we just had longer to develop bad sleeping habits? Or maybe we have more to worry about in midlife? (laughs) Potentially all of the above. So I think of midlife sleep changes as coming from two categories. There are physical and then there are psychological changes that many of us go through. So in terms of physical changes, we do need less sleep as we get older. Hmm. So you can think of it kind of as what our bodies and our brains need. When we're kids, when we're teenagers, we need a lot of sleep, especially deep sleep, because that's when we release growth hormones and sex hormones. That's how we go through puberty. And that's when we learn the basic things about being a human, right? So we need a lot of deep sleep for that. But as we're getting into middle age and older age, we're not going through puberty. We're not trying to learn you know, the, the times table. So we have less new information to process, less growth to do. So we actually do need less sleep. And our sleep also tends to be more often punctuated by wakefulness. So people tend to wake up more often when they get older and they tend to get less deep sleep, like I mentioned. And we're also going through hormonal changes, like for women, menopause, this can certainly disrupt sleep. And actually this is one of the most common sort of precipitators of insomnia for women. and But reassuringly, this should not permanently make you a bad sleeper. This is just a transition that you have to work with your body instead of against your body to figure out what your new sleep need and your new sleep patterns are. And also as we're getting older, there's more aches and pains that might disrupt sleep. We're less physically and socially active potentially. And so this is giving us less you know, activity during the day to help us build our sleep drive and, you know, other health problems or psychological problems may make it harder to sleep too. And speaking of psychological problems, one thing is that our expectations tend to stay the same for our sleep, even as our biological need for sleep changes. So we still want to get our eight hours like we did when we were 23, but our bodies are like, actually more like six and a half hours is what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also can get more anxious about our health in general as we get into middle age. And this comes with sometimes getting more anxious about sleep because we hear all of these headlines about how sleep is so vital to health. And at this point, we may also have had more opportunity to become psychologically dependent on sleep aids And maybe perhaps to learn some unhelpful things like spending a lot of time wakeful and frustrated in bed, teaching our brains over and over again that the bed is a frustrating place, like the dentist chair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of that rings absolutely 
true. So there are a lot of reasons that, that we may experience more difficulty sleeping in midlife, some of which we can do something about, right? Like making sure that we're staying active and, uh, and not getting trapped into these anxiety cycles about not getting eight hours of sleep or being awake in the middle of the night and worrying. Another reason that people worry about not sleeping well in midlife is because they also hear that this is linked with weight gain and they're seeing their weight gain up and they feel like if I can't control my sleep, I can't control my weight. I'm it's a downward spiral. In your opinion, how much of an impact does midlife sleep difficulty have on midlife weight gain? Is that a sort of false correlation? That's such an interesting question. And I'm not sure that I have a totally airtight answer for that, that I'm 100% sure about, because this is kind of hard to tease out because so many things are changing at the same time in midlife, it's really hard to pinpoint one variable that we can sort of pin it to because our activity levels, our social lives, our stress levels, our eating habits, these may all be changing at at around this time. But I think maybe one hopeful thing I can say is that I see this time as actually an opportunity to tune up health in all domains, such as For example, learning to cook more nutritious meals now that your kids have left the house and you have more time to do that, Mm -hmm. or doing more self-care, taking up meditation, taking up a new hobby. All of these things are good for our overall physical and mental health and very good for sleep. So I actually don't see why sleep has to be bad in midlife or after. It certainly will change, but Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is not a bad thing. As long as we take care of our overall health, listen to our bodies, and we're flexible and changing with our bodies, we can still have really great sleep health. Yeah, I I think you're right. The fact that there are so many factors in play here, interacting and changing at the same time, can make it hard to get a really clear linear answer. But on the plus side, it also means we have so many avenues that we can pursue in terms of as you say, fine-tuning the solutions. So we can work the problem from a number of different angles. That's exactly right, yes. But I know a lot of people are going to be intrigued by this whole idea of the cognitive behavioral approach. Is this something that people can begin to tackle on their own? Yes, there are actually great self-help books and online resources and even a a couple of app-based programs Mm -hmm. that are based on CBTI. So I think a good place to start is actually by going to www.behavioralsleep.org. This is the website for the Society for Behavioral Sleep Medicine. It has lots of great articles teaching you more about sleep. There's a catalog of international CBTI providers where you can see, you know, who in your area, who in your state is licensed and able to provide CBTI. Similarly, there's a pen as in PNN CBTI directory of international providers. And you can also just learn more about sleep health in general at the website for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And these are all great resources. And you can also go to my website to get some more resources and learn more about CBTI and insomnia. And I'm at www.jadewuphd.com. I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually visited your website and learned so much and got a lot of very helpful information. So we will definitely put links to the organizations that you mentioned and your site. And I can also recommend to listeners that they check out Jade's Savvy Psychologist podcast. Not only has she had several really great episodes talking about various aspects of sleep, but 
every other aspect of mental and emotional well-being. So if you're not already familiar with that podcast, I do encourage you to check it out. Jade, this has been so helpful and illuminating. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about this with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a true pleasure. Thanks for listening. Our Nutrition Diva podcast is produced by Nathan Sems. It's edited by Karen Hertzberg. And our team at Macmillan Audio also includes Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, Michelle Margulis, and our director, Kathy Doyle. We'll see you next week. Thank you.